From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, some new numbers have been released, and this is Metro Vancouver's homeless count. The count so far, or the count has found a 32% increase in the number of people without a home, and that is an increase since 2020. The count was conducted by the Homelessness Services Association of BC. That was in partnership with several community organizations, and it took a look at those increases in 11 different communities, and again, looking and measuring record numbers of people people who are identified as homeless. So this year, 4,821 individuals have been identified. This was the count that was taken on the night of March 7th, as well as through the day and the evening of March 8th. And that was an increase compared to 3,634 people counted in March of 2020. Joining us to talk more about these numbers is David Wells, chair of the Indigenous Homelessness Steering Committee. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, when we look at the numbers, and, and keeping in mind, obviously, that, that these numbers, every number is a person who was counted as being homeless. What do you make of the 32% increase? Uh, in terms of raw numbers, it, it's, I'd like to say it's surprising, but it isn't. I mean, from what we can see out there. So we know it's, it's the highest single increase we've seen uh, it, since we've done the, started doing the counts in 2005. I think some of the things that are inside that count are perhaps even more um, striking. For example, the the sharp increase in folks who have been homeless for more than a year, and that's up between you know forty and fifty percent. Certainly, it's up forty percent for Indigenous uh, uh, identifying individuals, but fifty percent overall. So certainly, that's a concern because it, it speaks to a different population. Um, the unsheltered population is also on the increase for Indigenous communities. So. Things like that, and when we have increases in unsheltered counts and we have increases in, in counts that are out into the outerlying communities, it likely means that our undercount is even more pronounced because we can do a better job. Or we, can, we, we have tremendous volunteers that have done a, a, great, a great deal of work for this, but it's a bit easier to capture a full count in the sheltered, uh, uh, for folks that are sheltered as opposed to those that are unsheltered. You know we're missing people in, in, in vehicles and tents in other settings and so when we see an increase in the unsheltered counts that's likely to mean that our undercount is that much more pronounced all right and i was going to ask you that in that these are the numbers and the numbers released but uh, but there must be uh, the actual number the real number must be different so is there any idea uh, like you said so it's it's likely much higher is there any idea how much higher the number the real number is um I don't, know, I don't want to speculate on that. Certainly, we know that there's been research pieces that have been done in different metropolitans, and and uh, my uh, my counterpart uh, Lorraine Copas, who's the chair of the uh, the non-indigenous uh, community advisory body, is aware of some of those, and she's identified, you know, said that in some of those research pieces, it's the undercount can be a factor of three to four, and in some cases as high as ten. So uh, that's some of the stuff that I think we'll need to sort of dig into and look at if there's a need or there is a need. Look if there's an opportunity to do. Uh, additional research to get an understanding of what uh, that un, that that undercount might be in, in terms of if it's vehicles, if it's uh, settings, that, you know, if there's safety concerns for people in terms of 
hiding from counts, any number of things we would need to look at to get a better understanding of that. You mentioned some of the areas where we saw the biggest percentage change as well, and uh, Delta, Richmond, Tri-Cities showing uh, big changes with people who are homeless. Did it go into, or do we have any idea why we're seeing such an increase in some of those communities? Um, No, I think when we unpack this and look at some of the questions we've asked folks, we know that... uh, you know, when we uh, one of the new questions was personal safety uh, for folks that are in a sheltered circumstance, and and we know that 42 percent uh, don't you know feel safe in those circumstances, and I think that doesn't capture feelings of unsafety in in unsheltered circumstances, and so uh, a number of folks I think are finding uh, unsheltered spaces outside of Vancouver, where you know we have a lot of services, but there's a lot of demand on those services. So I think it's something that we need to look into more. Um, but certainly, yeah, I get the sense that it isn't people relocating because we know from our count that 81% of the folks interviewed are homeless in the community that last had housing in. So it would strike me that a lot of those smaller communities, uh, we're, we're finding folks that will probably house there and then for a combination of you know, housing affordability, income, those being the two big drivers, they are finding themselves homeless. And when we look at people who are counted in uh, in, in this count year after year, uh, you mentioned vehicles, people who are, are homeless in the same community. What about people, I'm guessing it doesn't count, say, uh, people that might be uh, staying on someone's couch or might uh, have, have lost their housing, uh, aren't on the street, not being counted for this, but but don't have housing, should should probably be counted in this number. Yeah, and we, there, there's uh, there's a category that we would call, I guess, no fixed address, and, and in some cases that sort of falls in there, and it, it's 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 unsheltered in the sense that it, it it doesn't have that sort of security of housing, and we we we've had that con that issue we've identified in the past, which is overhousing, which brings uh, concerns not only to those who don't have that as their address, but those that do, because it introduces a degree of risk. So it is something that is part of that undercount. We know it's a significant concern. Um, uh, for all the communities, but certainly it's a significant current concern um, within the Indigenous community. Uh, when you talk about the Indigenous community too, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the representation or the number of people that are homeless are do not have shelter and are Indigenous, can you talk a little bit more about about how that uh, the the kind of the over representation there? Yeah, it, it, we you know we know it's, it, it's for a very long time it's been overrepresented. We've we've been around a third of the overall count have been folks identifying as Indigenous going back several counts, you know, really going back to just about the beginning. And that number hasn't changed. So the as the overall count increase or representation numbers increase, so too did the Indigenous counts. And at 33%, really that's about 13 to 14 times um, the population representation, which is about 2.4%. So, you know, we would say that if you're in, in Indigenous, you're 14 times more likely to experience homelessness in Metro Vancouver than if you're non-Indigenous. So that's a huge thing. And then on top of that, um, the uh, unsheltered Indigenous homelessness sits at 58%, which is about almost 20% above, you know, it was 51% in 2020 and 58% in 2023. And that compares to 25% unsheltered for non-Indigenous populations. So, you know, it's it's quite stark in terms of the large majority and quite distinct share of the Indigenous homeless population is in an unsheltered circumstance, which again speaks to the undercount we've got there.
Hmm. What can we do with the, the numbers? And again, they are a lot of numbers because we are talking about a count. But when we take the information, what can be done with it as far as trying to find people housing, trying to make sure we don't see a 32% increase again the next time we do this count? Um, it, it essentially forms part of our conversations with levels of government in terms of the degree of support and the types of support. We've got a tremendous number of organizations that are doing really good work. They've got, you know, very full caseloads and they're, and they're, and they're, they're making an, an impact. I think it really more speaks to the scope of that investment that's required. And so it's taking this information to levels of government to say this is, you know, this is about the volume of that investment, the volume of that commitment, but also to give them a sense of how this is, you know, not simply just the pure numbers, but also that complexity, because as I mentioned, when we think about folks, the sharp increases in long-term homelessness or the increases in unsheltered homelessness, those those sorts of experiences are bringing additional variables, additional costs. It's For a lot of those folks, it's not simply about finding an address. There's a, there's a, there's a need for those wraparound supports and services when, you, when you're a person who's experiencing long-term unsheltered homelessness. Uh, does it, do you think then, or have we seen it lead to changes when it comes to those services? And again, some of the communities that are that are listed that are showing the biggest percentage or, or people count over count, again, Delta, Richmond, Tri-Cities, Surrey, Burnaby, uh, places that might not have those services. Does this actually lead, do you think, to those services being offered? Uh, y- yes, it does. I mean, if we think about the, I mean, it, it, it's, the question, of course, is it enough? And of course, I would say no, it isn't. But has there been change? I think even looking at the numbers going to past counts, the number of sheltered beds or the number of sheltered individuals we see in the counts has risen over time. And so I think there has been an impact. There are a number of those communities that had no uh, shelter beds going back two or three counts, and they now have some. Are they enough? No, because we know that there's far more folks that are unsheltered in some of those communities that are sheltered. So there is some impact there. Uh, I think there's been some, some really good innovation in in some of the organizations in terms of how they reach out, how they support uh, folks on the streets, how they engage with them, how they understand that experience isn't simply about an address, but about, you know, working to create community, to create homes, uh, to create those sort of long-term things. So there has been a lot of good things done. It's just we need to, there's a whole lot more that needs to be done. And David, I'm curious too, and I should have probably asked you this off the top, when the, when people go out and do the count and talk to people and, and, and come up with these numbers, is that a point of contact as well, where somebody is asked, are you homeless, are you without shelter? Is that a point of contact where people are sometimes as well offered help for, or at least have that exchange with someone? Absolutely. I mean, we the volunteers went through a pretty involved uh, you know, training. A lot of them work in in the space. They're they're committed. I think we have about 650 volunteers. But part of that is they have that information with them when someone asks, you know, where can I go? Where do I need to look at? And 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 they are that that's provided to those individuals. So it is it is a good piece to have alongside so that it's not a detached standalone count. But if that someone reaches out, they have that that way to connect that person up with someone. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us and for talking more about this, the count and the numbers and what needs to be done next. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Sheila. Have a good day. You heard in the newscast from the industry minister, the federal industry minister, and just before the break, I played the longer answer that he gave. One of the questions put to him during that news conference earlier today was, 
Well, you're saying that grocers are already offering discounts and great deals. So if they're already doing it, does that mean you're not going to take any other action? It was a rather long answer, but I want to bring in now Sylvain Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, great to have you on the show once again. My pleasure. I, I, I won't play the whole answer from Francois-Philippe Champagne, but uh, he, he basically said that uh, CEOs are watching what each other, what everyone's doing, and they're already offering discounts, and competition is the best way to see prices come down. What is your response to, to the fact that the industry minister basically said, we're already seeing discounts at grocery stores? Yeah, taking credit for something that's already happening. Uh, You know, discounts actually are announced on Thursdays most of the time. So that was a bit rich, to be honest. Uh, But the bottom line is that things are actually improving. In fact, if you look at the data uh, in uh, in September, uh, you do realize that most food categories are actually cheaper compared to July. Uh, All categories except fish and seafood. So... Things are, are, are improving slowly, but they are improving. And we should finish the year with a food inflation rate of about 5%, which is exactly what we forecasted last year. And so markets are taking care of food inflation. Now, will, will Ottawa's measures help? Not really. I don't think it's going to help at all. Uh, what measures are they actually taking? Because that was what was, seemed kind of uh, unclear in the announcement earlier today as well was that the minister seemed to suggest that that like you said they were kind of taking credit for what grocers are already doing and saying well well, look uh, this is this is already working Uh, maybe we don't need to take any kinds of additional measures such as threatening taxes uh, higher taxes for grocers yeah uh so i think i think it's like uh, clapping with one hand (laughs) essentially uh that's what happened today if you're a struggling consumer out there looking for some help from ottawa right now uh that's not what you got What, what what we got today was a roadmap to make the industry more competitive which is true uh but for the long term this is going to help industry become more competitive over time not right now Right. Because, and I think people would agree with the, the industry minister that, yes, competition is the way to bring prices down. But but do we have more competition today than we had a year ago or five years ago? Uh, well, that's that's the that's the big issue. Uh, I mean, I would say that the minister really missed an opportunity to reassure Canadians they they were low. They were low-hanging fruits. I mean, a lot of people are saying, "Well, he couldn't have done really anything." Well, yes, he could have. For example, get rid of the snack tax. There, there, there's, there, there are a lot of products we're taxed on because they they shrunk so much. Shrinkflation is a problem, not because you're getting less for your money. You're being taxed on many products, and you don't you don't even realize it. So according to the uh, to Canada's uh, revenue agency, uh, some products have shrunk so much they're now taxable, and you can't really see it clearly on your receipt. I would have uh, I would have get I would have gotten written of that tax. Uh, another thing he could have announced today was to get rid of the blackout period from November to February. Grocers ask suppliers not to raise prices for three months every year. Well, guess what happens in in October and February. Prices skyrocket. 
It's right. a problem. It hurts consumers. I would have actually stopped the practice since we're in October. I would have stopped the practice. And, and do you think if the practice was stopped, would it not then just be be spread out during that time, or would it actually be less? Uh, it would have. It would have. Well, it would have spread out, but it, it's not. It wouldn't be as violent uh, as what we're what we see sometimes with some products, and so. But to me, it, I've always seen the blackout period as some sort of scheme that leads to up, up the food chain collusion, almost. Uh, and that's not practical for consumers at all. You mentioned shrinkflation, and that was something that the federal minister talked about today, saying that the government is establishing a grocery task force. This is going to fall within the Office of Consumer Affairs, but it's going to be focused on groceries. And one of the things it's going to do is investigate and uncover, these are his words, investigate and uncover practices that hurt consumers, such as shrinkflation. So that sounds good, but is there anything that, that, I mean, is it illegal that a box of crackers that maybe had 100 crackers before only has 80 now but costs the same price? It's not illegal, no. No, it's not illegal at all. It, it just annoys people. <laughs> but like I said, fiscally, there are measures that can be taken right now. The reality is that it would actually take away revenues from governments. That's the reality. The other issue, of course, is the code of conduct. Not all grocers have actually endorsed the code of conduct. He could have actually announced today that all grocers are endorsing the code of conduct. It just feels that all the meetings he's had the last three, four weeks uh, weren't really meaningful. Right, and and not meaningful in that, like you said, without uh, without having a he unanimous. Could have made the same announcement four weeks ago. Right, nothing's changed. Yeah, without meeting anybody. Yeah. So what do you think the the pushback is then? So if we look at the code of conduct, so he he said earlier today as well, plans are still in the works to establish the grocery code of conduct and that this would support fairness and transparency in the sector. Uh, He said it would also create a data hub, a food price data hub, so so people could better access information. Where is the push? The data hub idea is a good one too, long overdue. Long overdue, it will help businesses. Uh, But again, it's not going to help consumers right away. We are talking about grocery prices. Earlier today, Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne saying the country's top five grocery chains have agreed to take concrete action to stabilize food prices. He said shoppers will soon start seeing discounts, price freezes and price matching campaigns. He was reminded that... We're already seeing that in flyers and the prices are still more than they were a year ago. And it was a bit unclear what actual concrete steps government has taken. My guest just before the break, Sylvain Charlebois, made a point saying he could have made this announcement a month ago, even after having met with the grocers. Nothing has really changed. Well, let's see what you're saying about this on the open line and what you have been seeing at grocery stores. We'll start with John in Vancouver. John, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I'm in the food business, and everything they've announced is going to cost the consumer more money. So if they tax the grocery companies, they're going to pass the tax on to you. When they price freeze on for, uh, well, the holiday season, basically, October till March or February, depending on those stores, um, what happens is the companies that are coming up to those uh, freezes, they'll increase their price before it, and then they'll increase their price after it. 
Because over a period of time like that, the cost of things are changing so fast in the food industry that there's going to be a price increase at least twice a year. Do you think there's anything that could be done as far as action to stabilize food prices? Uh, you know what? I, do I think so? I don't see it stabilizing for a little while yet because the cost of packaging, the cost of glass, the cost of shipping, none of that has really come down a lot to, to stabilize. And the other thing is there's so much happening in the world with with new consumers, like people in countries that are developing, they're demanding that same packaging now for their products like glass and plastic, that the, the, the increase in sales is not allowing the price to come down. It actually has the opposite of All right, John, thanks for your call. Appreciate it, uh, you calling in today. Thanks. All right, let's continue down the line and see what else you're saying about this. Mike is on the line in Surrey. Mike, what are your thoughts? Hey, good afternoon. Well, my wife gave me a job to do when I retired now to do the grocery shopping so I didn't have to clean the toilets, and I chose it. I've been it for four years, and what I've found is that there's such a wide range of pricing of the exact same products. You know, I shop stuff to death, and, and just this week, cauliflower in one store is six ninety nine, in another store it's two forty seven. Craft dinner is a dollar in one store, two twenty five in another. It's the same product, same packaging. So I go and I do a lot of shopping. I even shop for my daughters now. And here's what I'm worried about: if they start talking about price matching, does that mean that my store that's selling my two dollar ninety seven cent cauliflower goes well? Maybe I should be selling it for five dollars. Maybe the five, the six ninety nine cauliflower guy goes. Maybe I should sell mine for five dollars. I think that when they start talking about price matching. You started talking about price fixing. How about we get the bananas to be all priced the same price in every store? You know, right now, every store sells bananas for uh, 69 cents, except for one who sells it for 89 cents. You know, I mean, we're starting to see price fixing more than we are going to see price reductions. But I encourage anybody who doesn't shop to go around and just on any given day when they're shopping just for fun, if you need cauliflower, tomatoes, you pick it and go to the five major stores that they've invited to uh, this meeting in Ottawa, you will be shocked at the price difference because on any given day, somebody's trying to get you to buy the craft dinner for a buck and, and the next guy is not, you know. And so it's it's really interesting. It's, it's a real hard thing. I don't think he can fix it. I don't think the government can fix it at all. I think that as soon as they start getting these guys talking to each other, it's like price collusion, and and that's not a good thing for the consumer. Mike, thank you for that. Uh, that's a, an excellent point. That was something I was thinking of as well. Do you do we want grocery stores to be like gas stations and the price is exactly the same for the same product and it changes the exact same way every day? Because Mike is right. You can go to certain stores, go to different stores, and the exact same product is a different price. Absolutely. Let's go to Sharon in Burnaby. Sharon, go ahead. Well, I was just going to agree with that guy. I mean, you have to shop around. I know it's inconvenient for some people to do that. But I don't shop just in one store, though I do work in one store, and I can truthfully say that I've noticed the prices coming down. Hmm. You know, they have been coming down on certain things, and they're leveling off like they're not going up like they were before. And, for instance, lettuces used to be anywhere from four ninety nine to six ninety nine. Now the average romaine or leaf lettuce is two ninety nine. So things are coming down. Where I notice it's not as dramatic a drop is anything that has a wheat product in it. Hmm, I wonder what that's all about. Yeah, I we think... have a war on the other side of the world where wheat is in short supply or the supplier is not getting his wheat out to market. 
So, but you know, in the store that I work, we can you can buy a loaf of white bread right now because we have a special on for anywhere from a dollar ninety eight to two forty nine. Hmm. But you have to buy multiples to right. get that price. But I'm just saying that you have to shop around. You have to know your prices. And if you find something's too expensive, don't buy it. Because if everybody doesn't buy it, then the price will come down. That is a good point. Sharon, thank you for that. Uh, I love it when Sharon calls in with the perspective from working in uh, one of those stores. Well, we started the show talking about the announcement earlier today. New legislation the B.C. government says will create clear rules when it comes to public drug use and will also enable police to redirect people to safer spaces where they can be connected to health care services and treatment. So the legislation, if passed, would go into an effect, go into effect and drug, uh, ban drug use in public areas that are focused on recreation. So that would mean no illicit drug use within a six-meter radius from building entrances, including businesses and residential buildings, six meters from a bus stop, 15 meters from playgrounds, places like wading pools and skate parks, as well as sports fields, parks, and beaches. So will this actually make a difference? We are joined now by Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA for Surrey South. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What is your response to this announcement and to this pending legislation to to try and make it more in line with where you could publicly uh, take other things such as tobacco, uh, publicly drink and smoke, that kind of thing? Well, this is this legislation is long overdue. In 2020, the NDP campaigned on fast-tracking decriminalization, and they certainly did fast-track. We've seen um, it's quite a mess. They've definitely left out a lot of consideration um, for public safety. Now that the horse is already out of the barn, they're backpedaling and trying to get some control over places where people are vulnerable and have been impacted by drug use. Will this do anything, though, as far as when you talk about decriminalization? Uh, yes, this is this is part of the whole decriminalization plan, but this isn't talking about any kind of safe supply. This is talking about drugs that could, in fact, be toxic or fatal and, and simply moving where people are legally al- allowed to use them. Well, exactly. So this didn't come with any new announcements of, of, of new centres for people or other uh, supervised consumption sites. And actually, what's not clear to me, and I tried to get some clarification before coming on the show, um, is whether or not this supersedes, this legislation, does it supersede the letter of exemption, the exemption agreement between BC and the province of British Columbia? Because remember a couple of weeks ago, um, they announced, the province announced that they had changed that exemption letter to include playgrounds, to include some of these other areas so that they were no longer exempt um, from you know, prosecutions under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is what our decriminalization exemption is. Um, and that would give police back their powers of discretion, their full powers in areas like parks and playgrounds. So if this uh, new bill, Bill 34, if it's passed and if it supersedes um, that letter of um, exemption, then it actually doesn't have any deterrence in it. There's no penalties in this legislation. So it would mean that police under this bill only have the power to, they could seize drugs if um, the person doesn't move or um, stop using drugs in that area. So 
um, if it was just a letter of exemption being altered and that the law still applied, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, the police would be able to do um, a full investigation of a person and be able to charge them with drug possession. But if it's superseded by this legislation, that they only have the power to move the people on and then seize the drugs if they absolutely have to. Uh, that seems like a pretty big difference in that uh, hopefully there will be some clarification on this. Well, I would hope so. And, you know, so like looking at the legislation, it, it's not made clear um, but it does say that the police, the direction that they should be giving is to tell the person to cease consuming the substance in the area or place or to leave the area. And then they, they could arrest or seize the substance, but no direction on whether or not then that person will be subject to the um, Controlled Drugs and Substances Act or if they, they, you know, if there's nothing. And so part of having the full discretion of police is the deterrence that exists when there is a possibility of being charged with a crime. We know that. So what if there is ability to continue to charge people under the Control Drugs and Substances Act, which I don't want to mislead, so I don't know what the clarification will be, and I heard that Minister Farnworth will come on, so hopefully he can clarify this, but if there is no deterrence in this legislation, that people will just continue to go there knowing that there's a chance the police will be too busy to come and call and simply move people on. Right. And, and I mean, certainly we can look at, I think you can look at almost any community in B.C. And even when there have been deterrents, if we go back before decriminalization, before uh, when there were deterrents, it, it wasn't deterring uh, people. This has been an issue in, I think, almost every community. It doesn't deter all, but I would say that deterrents do work. Um, on some people, and especially uh, when faced with charges or um, the possibility of breaching charges, it can have an impact. And you're right, it doesn't work on everyone, but certainly allowing police to have the full um, ability within their discretion to enforce the law is an important part of keeping the community safe. So, you know, as we go through, this bill is going to come up for debate. We'll have a long discussion on that. But, you know, these were things that could have been implemented. So think of this. The NDP wanted to go ahead with a pilot to try decriminalization since 2020. That was an election promise. They've had all of the subsequent time to think about what type of impacts this would have on public safety and to develop programming, to develop places for people to go and use drugs safely that would not be a hindrance or cause harm in the public or make people feel unsafe and would be safe for drug users themselves. Um, and to put forward legislation or make changes that would help protect the public. And they haven't done that. It's, it's years since then. And so, you know, like, this is not, I don't think, uh, an example of progression or doing something right. This is actually an example of their failure, their absolute failure to do right by what is, to this point, a very unsuccessful pilot that we're engaged in. You know, the, there is no publicly facing dashboard so that we can see what kind of progress is being made. And with the things that they are actually measuring, they aren't even measuring the things that are actually harmful to the public. So it's almost as if this province already has made a predetermined conclusion on what it thinks is the conclusion of this pilot. They are 
I don't want to say hell-bent, but they're hell-bent on making sure that they can somehow prove that decriminalization is a success without even having the proper measures in place. Uh, I want to go back to something you said, and and that was uh, in the announcement today. It says, again, if passed, the legislation will allow police officers to ask a person using drugs in any of these places, the places I listed before, to cease the activity and leave the area for another appropriate area. If the person refuses this direction, the police officer may choose to proceed with enforcement measures if appropriate. And uh, Eleanor Sterko, I know you are you were a police officer. How does that unfold? D- is that ever a successful interaction? Well, what I would hope and I think that, you know, police uh, had spoken about decriminalization before the pilot and when they spoke with police and the government loves to tout the support of police. They said that they would agree to it as long as there were sufficient supports in place, as long as the Healthcare, the places for people to go, the treatment and recovery services, as long as those were available, then police were supportive. And I think in this case as well, it's all fine and dandy to write legislation that says police should interact with people and send them to the appropriate services. What are these services? Where are they? Um, they, they don't exist um, for the most part. It's all well and good to hand out a card to someone, um, giving them a quote-unquote referral to a service. But if there's any kind of waiting list or it's going to um, be too many steps for someone with a complex health issue, it's not going to be successful. And then it simply becomes a matter of pushing a problem from one area to another. Right, because looking at this as well, and I'll use a, a few people have written in about bus stops and SkyTrain stops saying this is where they, they often see people using drugs. Now, this legislation says you cannot be doing this, or if passed, it says you would not be able to do this within six metres of a bus stop. So is that suggesting that a police officer then is what, uh, being able to, to eyeball what six metres is, and if somebody is in that zone, it's the officer's job to say, hey, you need to move and be, you need to stand over there, because that's six meters away and that's somehow supposed to fix the problem? I guess so. They're going to have to start issuing um, measuring tapes along with police batons, I guess. I mean, this is what makes it ludicrous because, you know, you think about people who feel unsafe because someone is smoking drugs. Maybe they're in psychosis. They're by a bus stop. Um, you know, the person's feeling unsafe. Do you feel more safe when they're six meters away? Um, or would you feel more safe if that person was brought to an appropriate location? Or if we had better, in fact, rules that suggested that maybe we shouldn't have open drug use like that and that we should be always, no matter where a person is using drugs, directing them to appropriate services. Wouldn't that be great if you could, wherever you saw a person, whether it was six meters from a bus stop or whether it was 100 meters from a bus stop, that there was the appropriate services to direct that person to and they could be given that service today. I'm hoping you can also talk. We have a couple of minutes left. I'm interested as well. I know you wrote a letter to the Attorney General. You posted the letter earlier today, and this is requesting an investigation into allegations that public funds have been used to support criminal activity and that these funds have been given to groups that could have potentially taken part in criminal activity. What are you asking of the Attorney General here? Well, I would like to see them do a forensic audit of how public funds were used. Look, first and foremost, I don't think it's ever appropriate for public funds to be used to be given to organizations that are involved in criminal activity. 
there are so many wonderful service providers here in British Columbia who aren't breaking the law, who would gladly take on a grant from this government to provide um, harm reduction services and other services for British Columbians. You know, what, if I said to you they gave the, you know, $1.2 million to Dolph and Bandu and um, people shrug, if I said that they gave $1.2 million to the Hells Angels, people wouldn't, wouldn't shrug. But in essence, when they are supporting Dolph and Van Du, who have admitted to buying drugs off of the dark web, which is basically from um, illicit crime and from, from gangs, they're essentially doing just that. They're, they're funding and propping up organizations that are breaking the law. So I want um, this to be looked into. I think it's highly inappropriate. We need to make sure we understand where all of the public funds went. Um, and also, you know, we need to look at the research that has been supported um, by this criminal activity, and, and we should be taking that also under consideration and not using research uh, for any legislative purposes or policy purposes that has any association to criminal activity in BC. Uh, you just uh, wrote and posted the letter today. Have you had any response? I haven't received a response yet. Um, I am hoping at least for a conversation with the Attorney General because, you know, I think it's a very serious um, allegation that we're making, but it's very serious one. Here we are in BC. We have, you know, I was at the funeral of a police officer yesterday. Uh, a lot of people watched it on TV. That officer was involved in a drug investigation. So we have people literally um, fighting for BC to try to fight against organized crime and drug investigations. And then we have, on the other hand, a government that supplied $1.2 million in funding to organizations that were buying drugs on the illegal market. And I think that, that that's just inexcusable. Eleanor Sturko, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, as always, for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.